In this week's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Paul Gilbert, Professor Stephen Hayes, and Dr. Dennis Turch. This will be the first in a series of Meeting of the Minds discussions, where we bring together leading thinkers to share perspectives on a topic of mutual interest. In this discussion, we explore the relationship between evolutionary science and clinical psychology and psychotherapy, why there needs to be greater integration between the two fields, the crossover between ACT and CFT, and the role psychology can play in informing our approach to wider-scale societal issues, such as COVID and the climate change crisis. If you're interested in exploring this subject any further, check out our upcoming Scientific Behaviour Change online conference on Sunday the 28th of March. At this event, we're going to have a talk from one of the world's leading evolutionary scientists, Professor David Sloan Wilson, who's going to present on using evolutionary science to change behaviour. We're also going to have talks on nurturance, psychological flexibility and behaviour change. And we'll have a talk as well on psychedelics, act and behaviour change. So it's going to be a really interesting day. You can get a discount on your ticket if you go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash events and enter the promotional code podcast when registering. I hope you get as much from listening to this conversation as as I got from recording. I find this this fascinating and I was really excited just to to take part in this. So I hope you enjoy it. All right, everybody, welcome to the show. Um, Today I'm joined by Professor Paul Gilbert, Professor Stephen Hayes and Dr. Dennis Turch. And we're going to be exploring the link between evolution and clinical psychology and psychotherapy. So to get started, maybe the best thing to do would be for each of you to tell us a bit about your background and what initially sparked your interest in evolution and its relevance for clinical psychology and psychotherapy. So who wants to go first? Okay, well, uh, <clears throat> as, we're, as we're both in England, I suppose I'll have a, a shot. So um, originally I was very interested in uh, Jung as a teenager, um, read Herman Hesse and all that stuff and got very interested in the concept of the archetypes, although I was actually uh, originally an economist, <laughs> would you believe? Uh, but then I retrained as, as, a, as a psychologist. Uh, and when I came to do psychology, of course, there was nothing on archetype theory. It was all classical conditioning and learning theory and everything like that. And then I did my PhD in Edinburgh on depression, and uh, it was on a medical research council unit. And they were doing a lot of research on the pharmacology, the neuroscience of depression, whereas I was one of the people that was very interested in how physiological changes occur because of changes in psychology and social events you know we know that um, poverty for example has an impact on depression we know that relationships have an impact on depression so I wrote a book in 84 called from psychology to brain state looking at the way in which some of these processes in dopamine serotonin uh, that the, my colleagues were looking at in terms of the synapses um, were exploring in terms of they could be reactive so there's a whole issues about you know are these changes in the brain disease processes are they reactive and if they are reactive why would the brain do that why does it do that and that then led into an exploration of some of the evolutionary ideas about um, depression at the time marty Seligman had come up with learned helplessness lack of control changes brain states there was stuff on um, attachment theory looking at what happens when uh, animals particularly juveniles are separated from their um, mothers caring so on and so on and then i also my area was uh, 
rank and defeat. Look what happens when individuals are defeated and bullied and harassed. So that, that was me, really. And then I became very interested in the way cognitive processes can stimulate these underlying uh, physiological systems to change, to produce these changes in brain state. So forms of self-criticism, in a way, are forms of self-downing. Now, Steve's got some wonderful things to say about self as context. Uh, so well, I'm interested in how this, when you think of yourself as inferior and you're criticizing yourself all the time, you're actually stimulating systems which biologically are attuned to shut you down. Because that's what has to happen if you're a subordinate and you're being attacked by a bully, you have to shut down. And so I've done quite a lot of research on that. So I'm very interested in the interactions between psychological processes, physiological processes, and the social environments, the contextual environments in which we're living. And I think there's a quite a lot of overlap with what some of the stuff that Steve does and his interest. Um, so that, that's my background. Can I just ask a quick follow-up question there, Paul? So are you saying that it was adaptive for us to sort of shut down if we were experiencing a bully in the past? Uh, like, you know, in an evolutionary environment, if there was like someone that was a higher status uh, primate that was like bullying you, it was like adaptive for us to shut down. And But this has kind of become like, if this is uh, self-criticism, the same thing happens. We kind of shut ourselves down because it, there's no, it's not really differentiated, if that, if that makes sense. Yes. I mean, the point about it is, look, if you, um, <clears throat> if you lay in bed and you have a fantasy, a sexual fantasy, I'm not suggesting you do that right now, but... Uh, if you do that, we, you're going to stimulate a whole range of physiological systems that evolution has built into your brain. You didn't put them there. You didn't put the, all those hormones, a cascade of hormones that will change your blood flow. Uh, but your brain won't really make a lot of distinctions of whether it's a real thing, really you're seeing, or whether you're imagining it. Okay. So it's the same process. We've done um, fMRI studies and we've shown that when people are critical of themselves, they're stimulating very similar, not entirely the same, but similar areas of the brain which is if they were being bullied and put down and frightened of being um, hurt by a dominant, uh, it's the same kind of area. So yes, basically. Now you've got to be careful though, because that doesn't mean to say that depression is adaptive. We're not saying that. What we're saying is that there are mechanisms which have an evolutionary trajectory, history, phylogeny to them, but the way in which we can stimulate them can be highly maladaptive, uh, you know, because of our new brain capacities. And Steve will talk to you much more about that in terms of the ways in which we think, perspective taking, thinking in time, self as context, all that stuff. Those kinds of processes have the capacity to stimulate these underlying uh, evolved systems, which can actually make us anxious or paranoid or depressed. But we're not saying that means that depression is adaptive. Um, because we're not saying that. we're saying that the mechanisms of shutting you down in certain contexts, be it through helplessness or whatever, uh, we have an evolutionary story for that. Thanks very much. So, uh, who wants to go next? I can if that works. Is that all right? Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Good. Okay. Um, so, the brief origin story of why I'm here having this lovely conversation with everyone is that I was a person who was very interested in Buddhist psychology and was studying to, you know, become a Buddhist priest and decided that that wasn't for me as a way of a career, you know? Uh, and so I went back to grad school to study psychology in the early nineties because it seemed like that was a little bit more, like viable with the mainstream kind of American existence at the time. 
Uh, and uh, I wasn't alone in this desire to like blend contemplative practice and mindfulness and compassion and things with, you know, cognitive and behavioral therapies. Uh, it turns out that was a part of a zeitgeist. I feel like the aging hipster who was like into it before it was cool sometimes, you know, I kind of like liked the band and liked their early stuff, you know. But it was a really actually very beautiful and very uh, uh, life-affirming experience when I got out of school and, and early you know, 2000 and had the good fortune of working with people like Bob Leahy, who was uh, actually far more open-minded than, uh, than many people in the CBT world, actually, despite his sort of being a firebrand in some ways, but actually really open to compassion-focused therapy and act and things like that eventually. And introduced me to my wonderful friend, Paul, and, and uh, you know, wonderful buddy, Steve. And as a result, kind of just took a deep dive into both the uh, science of uh, behavior analytic approach to psychological flexibility, mindfulness and behavior change in the ACT and contextual behavior science community. And it, with a real sort of like at the fore of everything was working with Paul Gilbert and uh, understanding the evolutionary model and compassion focused therapy and the role of compassion in human transformation. And uh, with my partner, uh, Dr. Laura Tersh, uh, our whole life became about uh, mindfulness and compassion and understanding compassion from a Zen Buddhist approach and a psychological approach, specifically CFT and understanding CFT from a CBS lens, because partially because our buddies and our community was in the contextual behavior science world and we wanted to share our toys and play nicely and like have a loving exchange with people that really mattered to us. And also what was helping our clients was compassion focused therapy and compassion focused imagery and they're cultivating like an ability to uh, face their fears with a great you know, strength that comes with compassion. And also some of the methods of and a diffusion and wonderful act techniques were also useful. So I kind of like, uh, for our discussion today, I'm kind of sitting in between, in some ways, these two approaches to evolutionary psychology. And my love of evolutionary science really emerged more from an appreciation of the Dharma and compassion science and psychological flexibility science and understanding that how those schools of thought sit inside uh, the variation, selection, and retention as natural, like processes that express themselves amongst living things. So that's, uh, that's, that's how I wound. And, and, you know, and Paul asked me to be here and, you know, I'd probably follow Paul into hell. So I'd certainly follow him into a conversation. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Uh, thanks very much, Dennis. Uh, Professor Hayes, would you like to go next? Yeah, you know, I came into psychology and really interested in peak experiences and all that kind of stuff and, and being concerned about environmental problems. I was an environmental activist and, you know, it was kind of a social change and more at the cultural level. And, um, you know, when I was looking as an undergraduate for a model, I wanted something that was precise. You know, I, I didn't like the fact that Maslow and others kind of pushed traditional Western experimental science out. I don't understand why they did it, but, but they, they thought really we needed to have a different kind of human science to be able to have a way of talking about high aspirations, values, things like that. And um, I saw in the behavior analytic work, I mean, Walden too is what walked me into behavior analysis. It was from rats to Walden too. I wanted the precision of that, with that wing 
and uh, but with the aspirations of you know a psychology that really makes a difference at a very high level of being able to inform our families' relationships and all that kind of stuff. I really was not a clinical person when I went on uh, my first internship with Dave Barlow. I hadn't seen a single client. <laughs> I didn't tell him that, but I came out of a program that was really more interested in systems and culture and, you know, creating transformational change and uh, the evolution of cultures. But, you know, the Skinnerian wing were evolutionists. They, they were pushed out by evolutionists because they, they had a different a kind of a level of analysis and they mishandled a few things, mishandled language and cognition, especially. Uh, but, you know, Skinner's dying sentence was about evolution and uh, the, the importance of variation and selection at all these different levels. You know, at the, at the uh, uh, biological level, he didn't know about epigenetics and so forth, but he really, if you look at him now, evolutionists treated it really as almost ignorant and foolish. And you look at what Fred was writing about now, and it fits very well. Uh, he wasn't a Lamarckian, but he was talking about how, you know, uh, variation selection process within the lifetime of the individual fits into these things that have, uh, you know, uh, at the cultural level and at the biological level have the, the same kind of selective processes. Now, what uh, ha has happened to me as I've gone into clinical psychology and as I've tried to dig in and also with my own personal problems is, is to keep coming down to this question of why is it so hard to be human? I mean, why are we the ones that suffer when we're able to do so many wonderful and magnificent things? And it turns out, I think that these are branches off the same tree. And so, uh, it, you know, finding the consilience to be able to talk about the, the brain in a way that is not reductionistic, to talk about our evolutionary history talk about our experience and what we can do within our lifetimes, but also our culture and what we're doing as a human community at multiple levels, at multiple time scales, but with the same basic way of thinking, which, um, you know, I think uh, Skinner really, uh, that was what he was doing and that uh, is what I'm trying to do. Now, what I've added to it, maybe that's any different is uh, I think a pretty good evolutionary theory of language. And it's not just a theory, it's an active research program. So, you know, there's several hundred studies. If you've got a kid who, uh, uh, you know, is on the spectrum and has severe language disabilities and so forth, you could do a lot worse than run out and find a relational frame theorist who knows how to work with children with developmental disabilities. Because uh, the data on that are so prof profound, I think. And uh, I think it comes because it's an extension of the cooperative species that we are. And we've learned how to do this speaker listener role thing that's in even what a single word is, which is what I ended up in my journey focusing on and then building out into a, a way of thinking that allows us actually to change some of those functions in areas like not being able to speak or raising your IQ, you know, nice randomized trials on that with this relational frame theory work, but not just that, also reining in the mind when it gets too darn bossy and, uh, you know, this sad story of uh, a tool that's there for cooperation turning into self-criticism and into othering other people and all of the horrors that we see in the modern world that are another branch on this same tree. So uh, 
you know, I've always thought of myself as an evolutionist, but not, I, I, I really thought that those traditional things, Paul, that you're going like, hey, they're talking about these things, that classical conditioning, opportunity, that's exactly the way I went into this. And, uh, but I thought there was a flaw there and uh, understanding why is it hard for people means understanding how to living creatures in general work and what's special about us. And uh, that's taken us over into this odd collection of things that are inside the CBS world that connect with the CFT world, that connect with the, the underlying evolutionists that I work with now with David Sloan Wilson and others. Is it true that when you first met David Stone Wilson that you cried? I did. I did because, and you have to understand how my wing, my wing is the ghetto. My wing is the people who thought they're died. I'm like a zombie, you know, I'm a behavior analyst. They died, they're done, they're finished, they're gone. Good riddance. I mean, everybody in psychology knows that. And so over oh, here's this little corner of the world saying, we didn't die. You know, we're still, and, and completely, in our view, misunderstood, you know, so feeling as though we're not listened to and we're, and, and usually the story is we used to be so dominant, we used to be so big, we used to be gorillas. Oh, nonsense. The SR learning theorists, maybe, but the behavior analysts, no, they were always questioned and thought to be weird. So to have a major evolutionist consider the possibility that variation selection within the lifetime of the individual is really an important piece of the overall fabric of evolutionary science would be like wandering in the wilderness, dying of thirst, and somebody comes and gives you a glass. I mean, I went home and wept. I did. <laughs> that, that there was a major evolutionist who was willing to consider that uh, we who thought we were evolutionists but were pushed out on the basis of evolution, you know, taste aversion, all these kinds of things, which I think are really wonderful examples of how these multiple levels work together. So yeah, I did. And I still, it's a remarkable thing that people like that are willing to consider us. There's many, many others, Pinker and others who still will happily beat us like baby seals. You know, we were just, we're the worst of the worst and the lowest of the low and um, evolutionary psychology, et cetera. So we're in a conversation though. I understand that. And I'm not trying to make them out to be bad guys either. Mostly they don't really know what we think. We've been pushed out so much that we can't even get in the conversation. So that's changing. That's wonderful. Cool. cool. Okay. Um, so the next question I'd like to ask, and maybe we go, go back, could go back to Paul with this to start with. Um, why is, why is it important for uh, a psychologist or a psychotherapist to be aware of um, evolutionary theory? And also how has evolutionary theory um, informed your own work with your clients? You know, how is it, has it changed the way you approach your clinical work in any way? Well, I think one of the, you know, one of the key things is understanding human needs, right? Um, so we are a social species. That's the first thing to say. I mean, you know, Steve's done this wonderful work on uh, language and everything. We're, we're a social species. That's what, that's, what we, that's what our brains are set up to pay attention to. Okay. That's why, as, you know, as, as uh, babies, we need to be looked after and cared for. And we are the species that have the longest developmental period, you know, and because of the way in which the uh, birth canal evolved in uh, humans, 
Um, babies are born actually quite immature and they need a lot of caring. And we actually evolved to have to be cared for in communities. So it's not just single parents, but in communities because childbirth was often quite tricky for humans, much more tricky than in any other species actually. And uh, infant mortality was quite high. So you needed to have kin around you that would support you and also support you during the period of your child's development. So this concept of caring communities is very, very important. And we're basically a species designed for that. So I think that's really important because we can then understand the importance of social relating and the importance of feeling valued, the importance of feeling that people care for me, but not only that they care for me, but I can care for them. I have value. They appreciate my talent and my ability. And one of the things that's a slight problem, we've got it once, well, not a slight problem, is that increasingly people feel they don't have any value. You know, when we do work with unemployed youth, they say, well, I can't get a job. Who wants me? Nobody wants me. Society doesn't want me. So th this issue about how people fit in, how they feel supported, how they feel uh, the communities around them value them, support them and care for them. I think that's hugely important. Right. So we need to root our understanding about why people suffer in our basic uh, needs, particularly social needs. And I know Steve does a, quite a lot on this too. So that's that's one of the reasons that I think, that's one of the reasons, many other reasons, but one of the reasons I think that evolutionary stuff is very important. The other, other one is that we have archetypes within us and some of those archetypes are real dark side stuff, right? Now, there are some contexts in which you can, gen, you can actually turn off empathy and concern for the other. And unfortunately, the last uh, 5,000, 7,000 years have shown we've done that all too often. You know, humans are also potentially one of the nastiest, most vicious species. You think of slavery, you think of torture, you think of the Holocaust, you think of the gladiatorial games, you think about you know, the, the inventions we've developed to, to kill people through crucifixion or whatever. So we, we have to address the dark side. We have to understand that because of our new brain competencies that Steve talks a lot about, we can become the angels, but we can also become terrors. And that's because we have these capacities within us and we've got to be very careful what kinds of societies, what kinds of politics, what kinds of language, what kinds of that we create. Otherwise, we can create the best, but we can also create the worst. So I think all that is to do with the way in which we have become the species that we are. 100%. I was reading uh, The Compassionate Mind recently, and one of the things you were saying in it um, is this, this idea of, you know, we kind of just wake up in the flow of life, and we didn't choose to be here. We didn't choose our brains. We didn't choose our bodies. And this can, when we, we have this realization, it can be a starting point for compassion. So a big, a big part of CFT is helping people realize this, this idea that, you know, we didn't choose any of this, but it is kind of our responsibility to, to a certain extent. Could you maybe expand about, maybe expand a bit on that and why that's such an important thing for people to wrap their heads around? Yeah, well, again, this touches on a concept Steve will talk much better about is this concept of fusion. So no living thing chose to be what it is. No crocodile chose to be a crocodile, no elephant an elephant, no human a human, no man a man, woman a woman, <laughs> black, white. We didn't choose any of this stuff, right? We just sort of find ourselves in a, a genetically built body with all these wishes and demands and feelings sort of firing off inside of us. And then, of course, according to the environments in which we live, the contexts, those uh, those processes get shaped, but we didn't choose that. You know, I didn't choose to have a system that can make me angry or sexual or tired or frightened. I didn't choose any of that. That's all in there. That's being built in there. And that's why all humans 
and indeed trans species as well, actually, all have the potential for these brain states, for these feeling states, for these emotions, because they're built there, right? The problem is, uh, and again, as I think Steve will talk better to this than I can, is that people fuse with this. They think, ah, oh, this is me then, you know, if I have rage then I'm an angry person or I'm a bad person or whatever, uh, as opposed to, no, this is a program in my mind, which has been put in by nature and maybe, you know, uh, choreographed a little bit because of my background. But what I can do is stand back from that. I can be to observe it and not and decide what I want to do about that. And then that takes us into the whole issue about mindfulness. The more you become aware of what's going on in your mind without blaming and shaming yourself, without fusing with it, but uh, you can then start to decide what you're going to do about it. So for, for us, this is very important. Now, there are lots of interesting sci-fis at the moment that are playing with these ideas that we're all programmed we're all programmed but because we have these new brain competencies to be able to pay attention to observe the mind to be able to be aware of what's going on we can make decisions about whether we want to let those programs run and do harmful things or helpful things there's a really fascinating uh, series called westworld it's a bit violent but all working with this idea about the concept of programming, you know, and my personal view, and I think Steve as well, is we need to wake up to the fact that we can't just let our minds run the programs that are destructive and, 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 and hurtful and harmful because we have them uh, towards ourselves and to others. So when we understand that actually this is not my fault, I've got all this stuff going on, I didn't choose it, I didn't build it. You know, my brain has been built for me, not by me. Uh, all these archetypal systems and they're you know they've been in humans since goodness knows when you know they're all built but how can i develop a, an awareness and a, and, a, and a mind orientation with the motivation to live to be helpful not harmful how can i start to use my mind in order to to do to do helpful things rather than harmful things to myself no so that that's my kind of core story really brilliant so in summary you know it's not it's not our fault, but it is our responsibility that's exactly. to, to yeah, manage that's, it. That's the, that's, that's the motto, yeah. I mean, there's so many things, isn't there, that aren't our fault. This virus isn't our fault, uh, you know, uh, but uh, it's our scientists are going to have to, that have developed the vaccines. We can't just sit around and wait for, you know, we have to do something, you know. We, we, we've got ourselves into a state of climate change, which is, you know, it's, we can say it's not really our fault, any one person, but collectively we have to decide to take responsibility to do something about it. So the importance of taking responsibility, regardless of whose fault it is, is extremely important. Don't worry about who caused it. Don't worry about blaming. Just worry about, okay, so what would be helpful? What can I do that would be helpful? And that's in many ways a scientific question as well, because we, you know, we don't always know, we have to work it out. But at least we can put the point was if you get into blaming and shaming, when you're trying to work with this mind, which can be pretty ferocious, you know, people can have some pretty nasty fantasies or experiences or whatever, uh, that diverts you from, let's forget about shaming and blaming, and let's actually think about, so what would help me? What would help me in this moment? You know, I'm, and I'm feeling enraged, so what would help me right now? What would be, how could I ground myself and just be in control so I can control my behavior? Because that's the key thing. You know, it's, it might be worth noticing what's happening with COVID because evolutionary thinking is now on our news uh, cycles. People are talking about the evolution of the virus. And, you know, evolution, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, in the United States of America, you know, something like half the population doesn't even believe it. It's a, a fact. 
uh, you're not allowed in some states even to teach evolutionary science in a way that's honest. Uh, you, there's, you, know, you have to you know, mention creationism and in many private schools, they will have entire courses on creation school, uh, creationism. So, and, but the virus of, that, that, we see, that we see in the form of what shows up in, for example, the uh, uh, you know, people standing in front of school buses screaming, get out to children. Uh, because they immigrated, you know, came across the uh, a line or what we saw with the capital and all that. That's a virus too. It's a behavioral kind of social virus. And, you know, that news thing that says, you know, we better get in there fast with some of these vaccines or we're going to see more mutations and we're going to see maybe really toxic ones. Well, because the, the, sometimes they even will say things like selection pressure, thing like that. This is a wonderful moment because I think if we can begin to think of ourselves, not as these kind of angels on the head of a pin, but as part of the natural world in which it's multi-level, multi-dimensional at multi-time scales and evolution is the way we pull it together, that we, we're in a different place where, you know, I don't read anything in CFT that I wouldn't be comfortable using and with that I don't recommend to folks in, in my, world and I would imagine it's very rare for you to see something Paul in the act world that wouldn't make yeah, sense because we've recommended what, your book and things yeah that's it's and I think what's happening ultimately even all these names and stuff are going to change because we have people working at multiple levels and the multiple dimensions and this crazy fact that you know I think largely because we are the social species and out of our yearning for belonging and our ability to take perspective and some of these theory, theory of mind and social referencing and uh, perspective taking skills that are there in before language. We evolved this wonderful thing that you and I are doing right now that we're all doing right now, which is great in being able to talk to in real time to somebody thousands of miles away. What a miracle, what an amazing miracle this is. And this same tool can produce, you know, in the social media and stuff, people who are QAnon uh, 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 adherents and so forth. And so we have not learned how to rein in the, the problem-solving mind that came out of this cooperative mind, which is where it started. You know, this the simple fact that I could say apple and maybe get one from across the ravine if I part my member of the troop, being able to take both speaker and listener roles in this symbolic learning, relational learning. And then that capacity being blown out by our cultural evolution and being able to then use with problem solving and all the things, whatever things we've done, some so fast we haven't had time to adjust to it. I mean, written language is only a few thousand years old. I mean, my God. Never mind what you and I are doing right now. And so, uh, you know, it's turned on us. And, the, and our spiritual wisdom traditions are first ones to try to rein it in. Now the psychotherapists are in there. I think when we get the consilience that comes from an evolutionary perspective, the psychologists, yes, the behavioral scientists in general, yes, of course, but all the life scientists, but not just that, the political scientists and the folks who want to see more adaptive culture and the economists and the, you know, this vision that this journey we're on has never happened before in humankind where we're going to take the best 
theory that's ever been developed in life sciences, which is evolutionary theory, and make it real and applicable to people in their common day affairs. And the, the, the stench of the Second World War, you know, that if you applied evolution, it means people die, uh, it has to be washed away. Applied evolution should mean that we're able to manage, to take responsibility for these cultural viruses and these cognitive and emotional viruses metaphorically, and well as the physical ones and so forth, and work in community with our fellow humans to, to bring the best of our Western science even back to things like what produces peace of mind, what produces connection and wholeness, what empowers us to be to live a more values-based life and to be kinder to ourselves and others. And, uh, uh, so it, it's an exciting journey as people appreciate what's happening here. Something profound is happening in psychotherapy, psychology, behavioral science, and uh, the, the, the larger vision about how we're going to work together to create a world that's uh, supportive of our children's children. 100%. Um, Dennis, have you got anything to add to that? Well, I want to endorse everything that has been said thus far and uh, also want to, you know, in uh, quoting the, the uh, early 90s rap band De La Soul, three is a magic number. So it's, it's kind of good that you have three of us here to represent three perspectives. And in Paul's approach, the brain has three emotional systems, one that has to do with dealing with threats, one that has to do with moving towards things that matter, one that has to do with feeling emotional safeness. And in ACT and in the, in, the, in the model of the self that Steve's put forward with his colleagues, there's three layers of the experience of self for another example of three. You know, the self as your narrative experience of yourself and the self as being aware of the process it's involving self as process, being aware of attention and experiencing yourself in that flow of attention. And then being aware of your awareness, self as context, like the observing kind of capacity to be aware of the entire thing. And there's another three that I find very, very important. In addition to the three variations of functions of emotions and the three variations of functions of selfing. And that's the three levels of function that we can see showing up in the psychotherapy process. And those three levels of using the term functional analysis as a you know, mid-level term, not in a technical behavior analytic way. But if we are to understand what is driving the actions of our clients, what is driving their suffering, what is predicting and influencing their behaviors, the behaviors of their inner world, as well as their outer world, we can look at it at three levels of functional analysis. And this is something that Laura and I do in our work with CFT and ACT actually. If a client comes into our office and is de describing an argument, say they had with their, with their boss, right? And they boss was mean to them and, and they wanted to say something, but they didn't quite say it. And then they left and they, kept ruminating about what they could have said, you know, and they, and they say, I don't even know why I'm talking about this here because it's not going to help anyway. Right. Let's look at three levels at which we could understand the function of what just happened in my consultation room. 
The first is a deep evolutionary functional analysis. As Paul suggests, it's understanding why would it be in the interest of one human member of the human species of primates, of living things on the planet Earth, to come in and be motivated by still ruminating and thinking and playing out an argument with a superior in a dominance hierarchy? Why would they have not spoken up? What would be the function of the submissive display? What would be the function of them feeling socially threatened? What would be the function of that for a member of the human race? And Paul's work on weaving dominance hierarchies into clinical psychology, the work on understanding the function of anger as a threat-based emotion, understanding that functional analysis in a deep context, we call it the deep context of evolution, can be very healing for clients. They don't have to blame themselves anymore. They can say, well, no wonder I was so worried about my job. No wonder I didn't speak up. No wonder I get so sensitive and so, so angry, you know, if my boss gives me feedback because it's not my fault. This is how my brain has evolved. So there's that level of functional analysis. There's also the level of functional analysis of a person's learning history, of their family of origin, of their attachment history. What in that person's personal history would have made them particularly sensitive to rejection from a, a, a patriarchal figure? Would it be evoking and re-experiencing trauma memories of a father who was cruel? Would it be a playground bully? How can that we understand why this is happening for that client in terms of their personal history? And then also, why is it happening in that room? What is the functional analysis in the psychotherapy relationship of that person telling me about something they did that they're disappointed in and then telling me that I can't help them. Let me look into my own emotional response to that client and understand what the function of their evoking in me a sense of powerlessness. Do they want me to resonate with their experience of powerlessness? Am I becoming an attachment figure who would love to help them, but can't perhaps an echo uh, stimulus generalization of, of, of an, a maternal figure. So that nuanced understanding of the many layers of functional analysis to me is like a key that unlocks so much more possibility for personal change in psychotherapy and understanding that in terms of processes, evolutionary processes in the context of evolution, learning processes in the context of an individual's learning history and the behavioral processes of social reinforcement and attachment dynamics as they're played out in the psychotherapy relationship are three central dimensions of evolutionary psychology that cuts across everything we're talking about. And that has changed the lives of my team and the people we train. And that's why three is a magic number. Very cool. I'd be curious to ask you, Dennis, because you use both approaches in your work, ACT and CFT. Um, which did you come across first? And do you think this is a, a good combination for, for a therapist to sort of bring together ACT and CFT? Yes, I, I came across ACT first. And I engaged very deeply with CFT before I engaged as deeply with ACT. And I, uh, I did something interesting to me, which is I listened to Paul and Steve and believed what they said. 
And if you do that, you will find that good things happen and you will also be confused. And this is what I mean. Both Paul and Steve and both ACT trainers and CFT trainers said a very similar thing. They said, it's about the science, not about the brand name of the therapy. And it's about first principles and the data is your friend, even if it's not friendly. And compassion-focused therapy is not called compassion therapy. It's called compassion-focused therapy. So it's a way of bringing compassion as an active process variable and an area of emphasis to the therapy you already do. And the psychological flexibility model ostensibly was not a package or a toolbox, but a process model that you can apply to the therapy that you're doing. So I trusted them both and said, well, okay, then why couldn't we apply the process model of psychological flexibility and relational frame theory to an approach to therapy that involves compassion as a first principle and as the primary process that you're targeting in the therapy. And to me, they seemed to, uh, to be extremely compatible. You know, so often what we do could be construed as compassion-focused therapy with a contextual behavior science orientation. Uh, people more often use the term compassion-focused act for what we do, but I think that's a little inaccurate because it's, it's, it's the term compassion-focused therapy means we're bringing a compassion focus to therapy that we're engaging in with a contextual behavior science understanding. And I kind of like that, but there's only so many, I'm a geek. I would make it the longest, most complicated thing in the world, but that's, you know, Neil, that's, that's an overly long explanation of, of what we do. That's really interesting. Um, maybe next, uh, I'd be curious to ask as well um, to, to everybody, why do you think this, this relationship might've been undervalued in the past? You know, this link between evolutionary theory and clinical psychology, like why are we reluctant to adopt evolution in, in fields like psychology? And how do you see um, this relationship developing in the years to come? And maybe we could go back to Paul to, to get this one going. Uh, yeah, it's a great question, Niels. I mean, I'm a little bit like Steve in a way. I, I read a book called Human Nature and Suffering, which is all about, you know, biological um, motivational systems for cooperation, for attachment, for status and all the rest of it. And people at the time said, oh, you're a young man, it will kill your career. If you write about evolutionary stuff like that, you're kind of out of the water. Um, but yeah, I kind of continued, I rather liked it. And then when we started Compassion back in the late nineties and people said, oh no, I don't want to start talking about that. That's too, too soft, too, you know, <laughs> it'll kill your career. So um, <clears throat> it's an interesting question. I think part of the problem is, and I'd be interested in Steve's take on this, I think part of the problem is because we grow up in a particular view about the nature of life, that we are created by God, okay, and then we can be sinners or not sinners. Um, we've had terrorizing religions, okay, that if you do bad things, you go to hell. And uh, certainly in the 16th, 17th, 15th, 16th century, some of the depictions of hell were pretty horrible. So... Our, our uh, social context of thinking about what it is to be a self has been highly textured by these religions about the nature of the self and all that stuff. And uh, evolution was always uh, seen as a sort of a, a challenge to the concepts of there being a loving God and all the rest of it. And one of the problems at the moment is that, of course, a lot of people are going through a spiritual crisis because they're saying, hang on a minute like they did with the Holocaust. Hang on a minute, hang on a minute. If this is a loving God, how come we've got 
things like viruses? You know, how come we've got terrible diseases? How come we, we die horribly of things like dementias and cardiovascular diseases and cancer? Well, hang on, hang on a minute. This isn't making sense anymore, right? So I think we're at a crisis, I'd be interested with Steve's point, of deep existential meaning crisis because the old views about creationism and all the rest of it are not simply not working. And that's why I think Steve's right in some places in America and Turkey has also taken out uh, evolutionary writing. In Turkey as well, you're not allowed to refer to evolutionary because this is a massive threat to these old existential uh, answers to why we exist, why we suffer, why, you know, what's this all about, you know. So we're entering a phase of these, this crisis of coming to terms with the fact that, the, that actually life is fragile. We are all fragile beings, you know, we're here for what, 30,000 days, we're easy to injured, we're easy to suffer, and all of us have to face those realities. And um, We've, we've got to work out why that is and what we're going to do about it. So that's my personal view that we are at this point of deep existential crisis of what does it mean to be human? How did we get here? What are we doing here? What is our relationship to the universe? What is our relationship to consciousness? What is consciousness? I mean, we're doing some research with psychedelics because I'm very interested in that area of thinking about consciousness. Um, so I think we're, it's really quite an interesting time, as Steve says, because we've got to really understand, bring the science into this is what it is to be human. We are a biologically created being. And as such, we have all these motivations and emotions built into us. And we have to learn how to work them, because if we don't, they will work us and then we can be in trouble. That's really interesting. Okay. You know, um, I think the, the, the inability to connect this comes from a couple of of things what what you said paul is, is is important and it's actually very similar by the way to skinner's early early writings on exactly the same thing you know that, that uh on the one hand on the other hand i do think we need we have a role of faith that we have we meaning and 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 faith and uh is not necessarily hostile to evolutionary perspectives the evolutionists uh, went through a gene-centric uh, era, you know, when in the, the, the synthesis that, that so dominated, you know, that to this day, it's really hard to get an evolutionary text that won't say things, you know, like the frequency of the genes in a pool as the definition of what evolution is. That's not what evolution is. I mean, that's not what Darwin said. I mean, that, that, that came later. And uh, that squeezed out the behavioral sciences other than uh, particular ways that you could take advantage. If you at least expanded to the brain, you could do it. And Paul, you've been there early and you've been pu pushing it ahead. The, 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 the folks would want to get to the culture and so forth. You know, epigenetics really opened that up, solving the human genome opened that up. We now have, you know, half a million people with full genomic analyses. And we know that it's massive gene systems we're not even polygenetic, we have omnigenetic. Every single gene can be involved in particular phenotypes and so forth. And it's massively regulated by environment and behavior. Yeah, That's yeah. what it evolved to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it evolved to do. And so, boy, is that complex. Well, tough toasties, some things are complex. Physics, physics is complex. Biology is complex. The life sciences are complex. But here's the wonderful kind of message in there is that we can create an applied evolutionary uh, perspective. 
And the, and the psychotherapists have been doing it. They just didn't know they were doing it. If you look at all the processes of change, we've done this research now, we're about to kind of roll it out, where we looked at every single mediator ever found in the psychotherapy randomized trial in the world, uh, and we've categorized them. And they all fit into an evolutionary model, an extended evolutionary meta model very, very easily. They're about variation, selection, retention, and context at the right dimension and level. Those six things will give you the, a core of a different perspective on evolution. But even the evolutionists are not ready to this. If you just say this, can you evolve on purpose? 99% of the evolutionists will run to the door. No, they'll say no, because in their first evolution 101 class, you have to beat that out of students or you can't and the, and the behavior analysts do much the same thing. Of course, we can evolve on purpose. We can use evolutionary principles to evolve our own individual lives, to evolve our families, to evolve our communities, to evolve our culture, and maybe even to survive in an evolutionary war or competition between us and a virus. You know, I mean, evolutionary medicine and so forth. Of course, you can evolve on purpose. You take what evolution has given us, including this symbolic reasoning and relational learning ability that allows us to know what the principles are, you apply them to the principles that allow you to change things and do it on purpose. That shouldn't scare evolutionists. It doesn't mean you're gonna be a eugenicist. It doesn't, you know, these are really bad evolutionists. Hitler never was, was not a Darwinian. Uh, so some of the history is wrong, but I, I think we have to get over the cultural trauma of the Second World War, the prohibitions from the evolutionists, the gene-centric era that needs to be let go of. To, and now we have an extended evolutionary model that is multidimensional, multidimensional, multi-level, multidimensional. And we need to harness that to application. By the time we actually get to having lectures with school teachers that help them do a better job of teaching or with people who are running their church groups about how to get better cooperation inside their groups or whatever, using evolutionary principles, which we're, we're there, we can do that, we can help them. Um, I think evolution will come to the center, which is where it needs to be. Because this is the one theory that will allow the consilience to bring all these different levels of the life sciences and all these different groups and wings and stuff and can we let go of the trademark names and the you know i would hope 50 years from now act disappears uh, it, what i would hope is there is a process-based approach i'm sure psychological flexibility principles will be in there i'm sure compassion will be in there and i'm sure some of these important things like values and so forth will be in there and how we then put them into individual lives and to small groups and into the culture and also use them with our, just our physical health and being able to take care of our bodies and so forth. That's what Western science can do magnificently well. We can solve this issue. But I do want to say this one other thing, this issue of meaning and purpose, this should not exclude things like leaps of faith. I mean, it doesn't mean that you can't be part of a faith tradition. It doesn't mean that, I don't think. And after all, it's supernatural. It's not pretending to be natural. We have that capacity. We can say, I mean, if you say what I want to be about is my children's children's children living this way, whether that's rationalized in a spiritual language or rationalized in a, you know, evolutionary monistic material language, what difference does it make? I mean, uh, I, 
I think we need to active, the, you know, religion and faith has had a role in our species, you know, Darwin's Cathedral walks that out, you know, without religion, we'd have a, have, have had a hard time getting to where we are today. Because, uh, you know, we wouldn't have survived the pandemics of the past and so forth without it. So finding a way to square even that circle, that would be fun. And maybe the evolutionists can help even with that. That's so I think that's, that's brilliant. And this whole issue about the distinction between religion and spirituality, the whole distinction about authority, obedience, the fear of, you know, all of that stuff. When that stuff settles, then new forms of faith, new forms of spirituality, new forms of question, because the universe, one thing we know about the brain is it does not give us reality. <laughs> <laughs> the, the brain is designed to allow us to live as biological beings, but the universe is far more complex, far more complex, multi-dimensions, you know, whatever, whatever. So the key thing, and I think what Steve and I would both agree is, can we remove fear? Can we remove fear? So that people are free to explore their faith, free to explore their spirituality without imposing it on others or without having, you know, in, unless I do this, God will punish me, all that stuff. So I think we're, that, that's such an important point, I think. And the other point Steve's make, which is absolutely so fundamental, is that when we understand what brings out the best in the human mind, and basically it is compassion or kindness or love, whatever you want to call it, something like that, um, we're amazing. You know, our, our, our cardiovascular systems work best, our immune systems work best, our frontal cortex work best, when we feel safe and connected to other people. Physiologically, we are at our best, right? So we understand that. And the point is then, if we start to create those forms of relationships between each other, within our communities, within our businesses, within our politics, this is using evolutionary understanding of the way in which we've been built to bring out the best in us. And then Steve is quite right. Then we can actually start to think about, we actually have control of our phenotypes. Now, why is that important? It's because we now know that phenotypes can pass from generation to generation. Okay, it's got a lot of evidence of that. And we also know, or there's increasing work showing that we've unfortunately suffered since agriculture with great violence. And many of those individuals who were more peaceful hunter-gatherer types were basically wiped out. I mean, the Romans engaged in genocide and the people that were getting slaughtered all the time were those individuals who were not warriors, not fighters. So they just got slaughtered and slaughtered. So, so we've done, we've decimated <laughs> some of our potential genomes um, with our war behavior. I mean, the, you know, all the work on Genghis Khan, for example, I mean, you know, his genes are just about everywhere. So. Steve's absolutely right. You know, when we really get hold of this, look, we're, these psychological changes will affect us at a deep phenotypic level. And those phenotypes are genetic, it can be passed from generation to generation. If we create trauma in people, if we create fear and terror in people, those phenotypes will get passed. So this is, this is the most exciting thing. And uh, we can be in control of our own phenotypic history trajectories. 100%. Um, that, that kind of leads leads me into the next question, I suppose. Um, I, I want to get all three of your your opinions on this. So, Paul, you, you've spoke about this a lot. And, and Professor, you've spoke about it in, in your book, Pro-Social. But, you know, 
how can we best now um, create, how can we consciously evolve societies that are, that bring out the best in human nature? And if, you know, if I were giving, if you were giving advice to governments all around the world or like the United Nations and how we can best do this, how can we create cultures and societies that um, bring out the best in human nature? What would you be telling them? Well, the, uh, well, the first thing, like Steve was saying, firstly, a little bit of understanding what does bring out the best. So this is really quite important. So um, 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 Steve's colleague, um, Dave Sloan Wilson, has written some brilliant stuff on this, you know, with uh, the Neighbourhood Project and so on. Um, so that there, you know, there are many people working on these very issues. I mean, how do we advise businesses to create a business um, environment where people feel supported and cared for and in safe environments? And that every business has the motto to be helpful, not harmful. I mean, we are we are working with a group called Compassion in Politics, and one of the key things there is to put pressure on politicians to not pass legislation that is would be known to be harmful. For example, we've had austerity. The Cameron government brought in austerity measures to deal with the banking crisis. They knew that this was gonna hit the poorest people of the community. They knew that, but they didn't care. And the United Nations wrote a damning report of austerity measures. Now, so when, you, when you're trying to produce changes, we have to have an agreement in our politicians not to pass laws that we know in advance will harm the most vulnerable. Don't do that. So that's just one example. Working with businesses, right, we're trying to get places like the CBI to actually have a motto for business. All businesses should work to be helpful, to, to benefit humanity, not to harm it. Now that has implications for some of our businesses, our plastic makers, our fossil fuel creators, and our, our forest, uh, you know, uh, tropical forest cutter downers. <laughs> um, but if we could get this movement, right? So how to be in anything that we do, in our schools, in our businesses, in our governments, try as best you can to be helpful, not harmful, and just be aware that it's very easy to be harmful. It's very easy to be callous because callous is the opposite of compassion. You know, compassion is sensitivity to suffering. Callousness is insensitivity to suffering because it benefits me to exploit you or whatever. So I think there's a, there is a gradual movement around that. I mean, um, Carney, the ex-head um, uh, of the Bank of England, did the brief lectures and was talking about how we develop an economics which values hum humans rather than money. So how do we have an economics that values human values rather than uh, the, the, the values of finances? That's the wreath lectures you can hear on um, BBC, BBC Radio 4. I mean, they're still there. Brilliant, brilliant set of lectures about we need a new economics. So there's a huge, and I think Steve would pick up on this. There's, there seems to be a huge movement. There's this sort of echoes, this cauldron, these bubbles are bubbling around in different places within philosophy, within economics, within business, within medicine. And psychology of actually what is it that brings out the best in us how can we reduce fear you know how can we reduce fear how can we give people confidence how can we give people a sense of enthusiasm for what they do you know, how can we focus on making contributions i want to make a contribution uh, as opposed to i want to make money <laughs> so those are my thoughts i do have something to say but i want to just briefly, I think part of it, uh, one of uh, teachers that I work with has said, uh, you know, uh, your job isn't to um, 
dispel the darkness. It's to, it's to increase the light, you know? So w- w- we can create contexts that nurture uh, and train, explicitly train in young people like capacity for compassion, capacity for wisdom and strength and resilience and psychological flexibility and bake in appropriate training to develop those human capacities across the educational spectrum and also find a way that the actual facts of what happens, let's start with actual just facts so that in the political sphere and business sphere, we can actually share facts rather than constant stream of misinformation. And then beyond that, the actual facts of economic, psychological, and social science and distribute those facts. If you have a combination of training people in the basic capacities that lead to mindfulness, wisdom, and psychological flexibility, and then you give them access to the real information about what's happening in the world, uh, the situation sorts itself out. No, I I think what we've been doing uh, is we've allowed these cultural evolutionary processes to put things in the water that are fundamentally at odds with human nature. Uh, If you take economics, uh, the the two major economic perspectives of invisible hand feed the greed or top-down command and control, they're abject failures. They're failures as an economic system, but worse than that, they give us a perspective on humankind that's a lie. It's false. It's not true to what we know scientifically about human beings. And that's why Lynn Ostrom won that Nobel in 2009, as the economists themselves recognize we need a third way, we need a middle path, and that evolution and cooperation might give us uh, a way forward. And so if you look at what we've done with laws, for example, in the United States of America, most corporations are organized under a set of laws that require the boards to only care about profit. That's insanity. It's insanity. They can be sued. They can lose if if they care about anything else. They care about the workers. They can actually literally be sued by stockholders. And you can organize under another set of principles. You can be a B Corp. And when we went through the last downturn, the B Corps did a lot better because the B Corps can be organized under principles that allow you to care about the workers, that care about the environment, that allow you legally to care, okay? That's how crazy this economic system, which has led to legal system, which has led to political systems, which is fundamentally at odds as, as who we are as human beings. And I would rather see people passing laws that you can't organize as a profit-only corporation, eliminate it. You look at social media, you know, you know look at that, uh, you know, very shocking kind of film about what's happened inside Google, et cetera, as they begin to change the algorithms to give people reflected back only the realities that they prefer. So if you pick any conspiracy theorists, next thing you know, it's raising up in the search engine other conspiracies that you didn't even know existed. 
What an insanity. That should be illegal. Doesn't anybody understand what you're doing? It would be like saying, okay, we should make it legal to run out of the forest and light all the trees on fire. No, we wouldn't do that because then the forest burned down. But we're actively allowing companies to create billions by burning the cultural trees down. And they know they're doing it. But they're also driven by the profit motive. And by the way, the boards of directors are saying, yeah, that's great because that's the only thing we care about. I mean, come on. So what we're going to need to do, I mean, this is one reason why I think who we are, you know, a multidimensional, multi-level evolutionary perspective allows us to rethink so many things. If we're the cooperative species, we're the social monkeys, we're not monkeys, but you know, you know, we need to find a way to put that into our schools and our organizations and our politics. And, you know, and, and you know, I've been actively trying to think through and, and actually be involved with business. I've started and sold multiple businesses. I care about business, but business needs to be put to a, a social purpose and underneath that uh, into this kind of human psychological purpose. Now, the irony is, is the very CEOs and board of directors, people, etc. they're reading a compassionate mind and get out of your mind in your life. I mean, they are miserable inside these systems. <laughs> and when you get for example, when you do, let's say, a, an act stress thing in business, next thing you know, this has actually happened with a randomized trial in a very, very large and famous bank that, with, with their stock brokers who are like rock stars at the banks because they bring in so much money and they're so individually important because their customers care about them. And if they leave the bank, you know, the customers go with them. I mean, they're very important people to the bank, these stock brokers. You walk them through some psychological flexibility things around stress and, uh, you know, creating a next thing you know, they want to have family day at the brokerage and bring their children and to meet each and, and, and meet the children of the secretary who, by the way, they didn't even know the children's names because they've never had the conversations. You know, we have created social environments in our workplaces that are designed for poor mental health. You know, we've created these kind of, we've ripped and torn at, at what it is that we need, what we've evolved to really care about. And so let's be wiser, let's evolve on purpose. And I think the nose under the, under the tent on that is evidence-based psychotherapy and a self-help movement that came out of it. Why? Because it reaches the hearts of people. I mean, I got a, an email three days ago by somebody who is works with a very, very famous politician that anybody would know in a very close way. And it turns out I've been having email conversations with this person for two years because I have a little principle. If anybody emails me, I respond. So every person that has OCD on the planet can email me and I freaking respond. You know, I mean, I don't know why. I just always thought it's of importance, you know, somehow that one. And it turns out I go back because I realize, oh my goodness, this person is connected to somebody who can change things internationally. And initially was just writing me about anxious worries and so forth. And so we, the people on this call, but also the people listening to us, the, who are going to be mostly, I think, 
the psychotherapists and the change agents and so forth. And I'm sure, Dennis, on some of your clients and the people who know your clients, you as a big practice in New York, you know what I mean? We are, have our hands on the lever of the culture in a really important way that goes far beyond that individual because that individual is part of a family, a group, a business, et cetera. And when they learn how to be more open, more caring, more compassionate, more values focused, more mindful, and they see the transformation that it puts in their lives and their children's lives and the relationships and so forth, let's carry that through the next level not in an arrogant way. We have to be very careful. We could make mistakes. Don't just turn over the politics to the damn psychologists. But, but yes, get us in the room. And when you're talking about COVID or you're talking about the economic problem or immigration or something, couldn't somebody say the word psychologist? Couldn't somebody say behavioral science? Why is it only the political scientists and the economists and the and the technologists and so forth? I mean, my first book was... Uh, environmental problems, behavioral solutions. We're never gonna solve the problem of the environment if we can't reach human behavior of you know, many, many millions of individuals. How's that gonna happen? It's gonna happen out of these very processes. So uh, we're gonna have, there's a lot of things that need to happen in our laws and our regulation and our culture and our businesses. And um, I think we have an important role out of it and evolution can give you the one theory that gives you the consilience for all hands on deck, in humility, listening, not just speaking. Can we work out in a data-based way how best to evolve as a human species, as a culture, as individuals, families, communities, and groups? How do we best do that and solve these, these challenges that are in front of us that if we don't solve, threaten even our existence on the planet? Thanks very much for sharing, Steve. That's a really interesting perspective. Um, I think that's all we've got time for. And before we go, I want to say a huge thank you to all three of you for, for just taking the time to do this and, and sharing some of your wisdom with us. Um, before we go, have you guys got any um, kind of follow-up resources for people to, to check out after this conversation that you'd recommend that are, that are kind of good follow-ups from the topics we've covered today? Well, yeah, there's always our websites and things you can think, but I, I think what we've seen today is this common purpose uh, to try to find a way in which we can use the brains that we've evolved the way we are, you know, our, what you call our oxytocin systems or vagal systems or whatever it is, our basic human needs to be connected. Now, there are many, many different levels of that connectedness. If you're into Buddhist meditation, you say everything is connected. We're all interdependent in, in all the universes of consciousness, you'd say that. But also, I think, as, as biological beings, what brings out the best in us is to feel safe with each other, to be able to see the smile in the eye of the other, right? This is so important. And to know that people are working for the benefit of you and for your community and for your business and so forth. And Steve is so right about this whole issue that, you know, money has had its day. We, we obviously can't do things that are unprofitable or all gonna go bankrupt. So it's all about balance. But this idea, right? This basic idea that we form businesses to benefit humanity. That's what we are about, right? That's the whole point, you know? To, how can we use our entrepreneurial skills, our investment or whatever, for the benefit of humanity? How can we do that? Because it's very easy 
not to do that. So I think that's what I hope that people will take away from this is this combination of what Steve calls consilience, this bringing together of these different approaches. But ultimately, all of us are trying to work out how to create a future where we use the nature, our understanding of our evolved minds and our evolved needs and what does bring out the best in us for the benefit of humanity. And that's the psychological, uh, many other people are, are important as well, but we have to bring that knowledge so that people like people in businesses, like politicians, like in schools can begin to use it. Um, so I find it very exciting. I was very inspired by what Steve was saying. I find it all very exciting. Thank you, Paul. Um, Dennis? And, and Dennis, what well, you know, Dennis was saying too, because um, Dennis didn't have a chance to talk much about politics, but I know Dennis has the same sort of views. <clears throat> well, you know, I didn't try something a little different. Like I'll invite any listeners to do a little uh, behavioral experiment, right? So yeah, my website's mindfulcompassion.com and compassionatemind.co.uk is you know, the Compassionate Mind Foundation in, in, in the UK's website. And, you know, Steve will talk about the CBS resources and stuff. But, uh, you know, also, you check me out on Twitter. I post all the time and it's a beautiful little community we have there kicking around. But more important than that, why, what the hell? Like, rather than go to my website, um, before you do, why don't you go to like, if you're in America, go to nokidhungry.org. Or, you know, if you're in the, you know... In Europe, go to like actionagainsthunger.org and UNICEF. And um, rather than in endorsing anything we do, why don't you like donate like five or ten dollars to hungry children and think about whether or not you want to do it first and then do it and then see what it feels like to consciously know that you did that, like afterwards, that you actually did something that could contribute to the good in someone's life. Now, you're probably listening to this. You're probably like a psychotherapist. You might already donate to these charities. You probably donate to more than that, or maybe you're an educator, and you already give way more. So I know I'm preaching to the choir, but that's not because I think I need to change your mind. I would like you to have the conscious experience of what happens beyond self-compassion when in a mindful way, you deliberately engage in a conscious act of compassion and see what it feels like in your body, see what it offers you in new behavioral options to deliberately evolve even just for one hour or five minutes by donating. And I'm going to do the same thing and I'll see what it feels like. Maybe it'll feel terrible. Maybe I'll become a really mean bastard after this. And, but, uh, you know, that's, it just occurs to me that that would be a neat little experiment that anybody listening to this could do. And who knows, like maybe, maybe a few of us, you know, we could, we could help some people out even in just a small way. And that's the most important thing. We're all in it together. And if it's not about love, it's not about much. So thank you for having me, Neil. Thanks very much. Um, you know, I want to go back to uh, something that, um, you know, Paul said that we, on the one hand, we can be, such compassionate and wonderful species and on the other hand we are the worst of the worst at our worst there's no species more vicious uh, more warlike more harsh and i think you know this um, greed is good or command and control kind of thing that we've got in the world where we need a third way we need to understand that Yes, you can produce greedy people. You can produce violent people. You can produce an us and them that somehow makes it okay to uh, shriek at four-year-olds, get out in front of the school bus and that horrible thing that happened in uh, Arizona when the 
children are coming across the border. You, so what do we have to actively create a context in which cooperation, compassion, and caring can be the core of who we are. If, if you destroy the context, that capacity that we have gets diminished and never disappears, but boy, gets squeezed down. And I think we're seeing it in the modern world because we're doing unwise things. So if you want to see some of these efforts to link psychological flexibility to, for example, Lynn Ostrom's uh, design principles about how you create uh, you know, uh, uh, positive pro-social groups, uh, go to prosocial.world. It'll look it'll expose you to technology that will help you sort of th think that through and a bunch of evolutionists and so forth in, in areas like economics, uh, you know, Evonomics is a really great uh, website walking through them. You know, uh, if you were interested just in my work, stephenchayes.com, but if you're a professional interested in the act work, contextualscience.org, and you'll find in the contextual science community, it's not just the ACT community, it doesn't say the Association for ACT. You'll find the you know, mindfulness-based approaches, compassion-based approaches, and uh, you know, developing nurturance and, and cultural community change and so forth. So we're trying to create in community a, a perspective that empowers behavioral science to be part of the solution of creating a context which it's possible for us to be our best selves. And uh, if, if we don't, we do clear the field for um, uh, greed or top-down command and control to take over our culture. And we have allowed that to happen. We're paying the price and the price is gonna go up, not down. It can get worse from here. And so uh, uh, it's time's up, you know, if we're not part of that solution, we're part of the problem. And so the people who've experienced this from the inside out and knows the importance of compassion and mindfulness and caring and values have to figure out a way to put it into these larger efforts to, to steer the culture uh, towards a healthier future. So those are some of the resources I, I, I give to you. And thanks for the opportunity. And Paul, I enjoyed this so much. And uh, you know, uh, we, we just uh, are so uh, lucky to have your work be part of it. And you have added things. I have to tell you, can I say this one thing? You know, that my sensitivity to basic human needs and so forth, which is showing up in my writings, more liberated mind, things like that, have come because as I've come into the evolutionary science community and read people like Paul's work and so forth, it's actually changed my thinking. And so, you know, like the, the, this, any one level that doesn't really work if we're not thinking at multiple levels. And so, you know, what's going on in the underlying neurobiology and what's going on with our basic human needs and so forth are, are really critical to understanding you know, what's going on in learning processes and what's going on in some of these uh, cognitive processes and so forth. So uh, we're all on a journey together and that's certainly true of me and I'm very appreciative of what uh, you've done uh, for the field, Paul, and for me personally. So thank you for the opportunity to share this uh, uh, in this podcast, it's pretty cool. Thank you for doing that now. Great pleasure, Steve, lovely to talk to you.
Awesome. Well, thank you very much to you both. I really appreciate you, you taking the time today. I think Dennis has, has gone. He got a client there. Um, but yeah, thanks very much, guys. I really appreciate it. And I wish you the best of luck going forward.